Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 42 of Life in the Pit. For the second time this month, we are returning to Broadway. I'm going to be talking to Sheila Abate, who plays French Horn and has played French Horn for Broadway Productions. And I'll tell you more about her in just a moment. But first, I just want to thank everybody that has taken the time to reach out to me, uh, leave feedback on the show. Uh, That is always very much appreciated. Uh, Also, appreciate the donations. Uh, If you do feel inclined to give, uh, there may be a time in the show's future that I may finally open up a Patreon account and uh, have some extra things in there. Uh, that Those are some ideas that are in the works. But right now, um, the only support for this show is a donate button on my website. And that is at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. And uh, any any amount that you can give is much appreciated. It all goes toward the operating expenses for the show. And something that I tell you at the very end of every episode that I almost never tell you at the beginning is if you're on social media and want to find us, you just have to search for Life in the Pit Pod at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And I keep saying all three of those, but truthfully, and this is totally my fault, (laughs) we're very inactive on Twitter. Um, Part of that is there's not a lot of followers on Twitter, and, and maybe there's not a lot of followers because I'm not very active on Twitter with the podcast. So maybe that's something else that might change in the future. We'll see. Uh, but definitely Facebook and Instagram, we're pretty active there. It's life in the Pit Pod. Uh, check us out. Well, so often when I have guests, I often wish that I could just include uh, a performance of them playing their instrument. So that if you're not able to see a show in person, you at least know what they sound like. Well, that's no problem with Sheila Abate. She plays French horn, and she plays them in several cast recordings from the last decade. Some of them include A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, South Pacific, Honeymoon in Vegas, Evita, Fiddler on the Roof, Anastasia, and most currently, Disney's Frozen. In addition to that and other shows, Sheila also has a brass quintet that's called Triton Brass and uh, has done a lot of gigs as a freelance musician, also regularly appearing as a third horn with the Greenwich Symphony Orchestra and the principal horn of the Vermont Symphony Orchestra since 1999. Sheila and I had a very fun conversation that we're about to share, and um, it's just wonderful to hear all of her stories uh, from playing in Broadway, from opening shows, uh, just some of the stressful moments that she's had and some of the great, um, wonderful moments that she's had. She introduces us to something that exists in Broadway called Snow Calls. Uh, If you want to know what that is, keep on listening. Also, it was a little tough to find a common time that we could talk, so uh, we talked really early on a Sunday morning, and you will probably almost certainly hear that in my voice when we talk. I I didn't notice it until I started editing it, but 
yeah, my voice is probably about a half octave lower than normal in this interview, so sorry for that. Uh, but the conversation is great, and I'm glad that we could have it at any time. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Sheila Abate. Sheila, thank you for taking time to talk to me today. My pleasure. It's nice to be with you. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, it was, so we are recording this bright and early on a Sunday morning. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're busy. I'm busy. It's good that we were able to fit this time in. You work in New York. Uh, has that been the case? Have you stayed in New York during the pandemic? I have, yes. Um, I grew up in New York. Ah. Um and that has had some to do with why I haven't left New York. Uh, my mother, um, who has been, I'm grateful to say, very healthy, um, but my mother was is elderly, and I was interested in spending time with her, especially during the beginning of the shutdown when, when things were at their most confusing and most um, uncertain. Uh, right. So I never actually left I didn't leave the state. Of, I haven't left the state of New York for a year. Right, right, <laughs> and uh, and New York was, you know, one of the hardest hit, at least early on. You know, when for sure. people yeah. trying, you know, trying to get things under under control. Not, not that we ever really got them under control, but <laughs> that's a that's a whole different yeah, conversation. Different, yeah. different podcast, but but yes, New York was definitely um, an epicenter, um, right, for a long time. Yeah, I'm, I was just recently talking to my sister, and she's convinced that she and her husband got COVID. They both got really sick at the same time, and they, you know, it, it was all the symptoms that were described later, but they were in New York on Christmas, like around her birthday. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, nobody knew what it was. They couldn't get tested for it at that time. They didn't have any tests over here. Uh, but she says, you know, she's more and more, she's convinced that they had it because they felt really bad. But the yeah. doc all the doctors could say is it's not the flu. <laughs> they yeah. didn't test for what it might be. So, <laughs> Well, if it makes your sister feel any better, I'm in, this, I'm in the same boat. Um, yeah. I definitely, I, I am 100% sure that I had it, even though I was never given a diagnosis. Um, although I felt the symptoms much later. Um, if, so if she was in New York around Christmas time, it wasn't until late January, early February that I, um, I became sick. And, you know, like a lot of people, I, I experienced, like I get one flu a year or what I get run down once a year with the same thing. And this right. was a totally new experience. This was a totally different kind of illness. And, um, I, I never experienced before. And, um, I did go to, uh, I went to one of those urgent care places because my doctor can be difficult to see. Um, so I just kind of popped in and, and he gave me the Z pack and gave, you know, said, gave me the, yeah, well, I don't know what it is. And, uh, and he just go home and go to bed. I was like, no, you don't understand when I'm, when I'm sick and I don't go to work, I don't get paid. So we got to work and, you know, which is horrifying now in retrospect. It's like great. Right. So if I did have it, I, I, I probably gave it to the entire orchestra and cast of Frozen, but that's oh, another story. Right. So yeah. Now Frozen anyway. Frozen is what you were playing when all when Broadway shut down, right? Yes. Frozen at the time was going strong, doing great. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> over. Well, that's over now. They all close. Everybody says. Yeah. yeah so every show closes. Mm, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean. Hopefully by the end of this year, we'll be looking at something different. I, I don't know. I stopped predicting a while back. I, I used to send out things to my students like uh, like in two months or three months, we're definitely going to be uh, – well, I, didn't, I never used definitely. But I was confident when I said, uh, we'll be able to do this in person again. And I'm like, no, no. Yeah. So You're right. These predictions are exhausting. I, I totally agree. And um, I think mm-hmm. I've, I've learned a very – important lesson in just going with the flow and, you know, letting go of whatever right. ex- expectations on schedule because they're always, <laughs> I'm always disappointed <laughs> by all these, by the predictions that I'm making for myself. So forget it. Right. Anyway. You, you just said letting go and you were playing frozen. I'm sure there's <laughs> a connection there. Yeah. It, it did trigger all of those feelings. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> cue, cue the music. Right. Uh, well, I'm honored to be talking to you today uh, for for one specific reason, and that is uh, you're the second person I've talked to that plays French horn, and that was that was my secondary instrument for a long time. I'm a pianist, oh, cool. but uh, I did that was my band instrument from seventh grade onward, and I played it through college, and I did fairly well. Like I was in Florida, I did all state three times. I did um, yeah. intercollegiate okay. one year and all that, and uh, but. Then, you know, when it was time for me to graduate and I was like, I can't do everything. I'm going to have to <laughs> prioritize. And I just did not. Sure. I didn't practice the horn. I didn't have a private teacher for more than one year. And the, right. there were just some things that I was lacking to do anything more than just kind of have fun with it. And I was it took me several years after graduating to figure out I'm a third horn player and nothing else. I can play high notes, <laughs> can't get the low okay. notes <laughs> and all that. And. So hey, look, a horn player is a horn player, friends. You know, yep. it's cool. Right. But, uh, you know, it's a great versatile instrument. I wanted to play trumpet when I started band, but it was mainly because we had a trumpet. My older brother played it. And oh, yeah. and all it took was the band director when we were trying yeah. out instruments. Knew my, it was the same band director my older brother had. And saw my mom says, how how is his ear? Because I was taking piano lessons. And oh. mom, without missing a beat, goes, it's a great ear. And right. and she said, let's try you on French horn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and it was yeah, fun. It was I like I had never even thought about it, but it was great. Um, so that was my short story. How did you get into playing French horn or how did you get into music in general? Um, well, so as I mentioned before, growing up in New York, um, New York is is – and certainly in the eighties when I was in grammar school, blessed with great music programs. Uh, A lot of the public schools, um, it's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons, one of the benefits of having really high taxes is that, you know, these, these communities, these schools have, have, um, rich extracurricular and arts and, um, you know, core arts programs available to them. So, um, my school was no exception and, um, I'm the youngest of four sisters. I've, I've three older sisters and all of us, as we were growing up, were required to play something. We had to be in the chorus and we had to pick an instrument and, um, give it a try. And, um, so, you know, I just was going, I was doing as everybody else did. Um, and the, the only difference, you know, a couple of my sisters really did enjoy their instruments and um, my oldest sister took it um, all the way to college. Um, but there was something I think in particular about my 
experience with the horn early on that um, it really was it was kind of a powerful connection from a very young age. Um, and I attribute that to uh, my teachers mm-hmm. and I attribute it to, um, I think, I think about, you know, the stereotypical youngest child uh, tendencies uh, that we all seem to develop. And I think it kind of enabled me to feel like it was my thing. You know, all my older sisters had their things and this was going to be my thing. And, um, and it just sort of became this more and more, uh, became more developed over, over time. And, um, by the time I was in high school, I knew I loved it. I was taking private lessons and, um, I was going to summer programs, summer camps in, in my area on Long Island. And, um, they were pretty powerful experiences. Um, and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, as an undergrad, I did not go to a conservatory. I went to Boston college, uh, which is a liberal arts school. It's a great place to go to school. Um, right. but it's not your typical, uh, path, not your typical college, mm-hmm. uh, choice for somebody who wanted to be a professional. Um, but it, it ended up working out in the long run and, um, and you know, all's well that ends well once right. we get cracking. Yeah. Oh, there, there are so many paths. Yeah. So, so, uh, if I heard you correctly, uh, you started right with horn. You didn't like transition from another instrument. So, yeah, I, I, I know a lot of schools uh, do it differently, but right. I, I mean, I literally just think that my grammar school, Uncle School in Massapequa, had the inventory. <laughs> they had French horns on the premises, so they could hand them out. Right. Well, you know, great. my uh, my Florida town was not very, not very big. It had uh, twenty five thousand people, but um, there was only two middle schools for the entire area so you know each band was just very large and we and beginning band we had seven french horns which was yeah. kind well, of amazing is a hotbed. florida oh. is a hotbed for horn players yeah. you know um florida cranks cranks them out and has right. always it's amazing florida texas new york anyway right nice so i was just thinking about uh, you know questions i was going to ask you about uh you know theater well obviously it sounds like you grew up around theater so when did you get to play for a show for the first time? Yeah, um, I did grow up around the theater. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, because my school was was pretty happening, had a lot of things going on. The first time I got my hands on a Broadway book, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I was I was very early in high school. So it would have been my my freshman or my sophomore year. And it was Guys and Dolls. And, man, I had no business <laughs> playing um, but I, I mean, I remember it very, very vividly. I remember the, the confusing handwritten transcript that is so often in old time Broadway shows. Yeah. Um, and I just remember, I mean, during the whole process of the run, which was as, as anybody played shows in high school, they, you know, it's months, you know, they, they rehearsed the bejesus out of these things for, for months and months. And by the time we got to the performances, I could suss out some of these counter melodies and some of these beefy parts. Um, and it was amazing to me of mm-hmm. how, how rich our parts were. Mm-hmm. And it was like, God, you know, and, and I, I mean, as I said, it was totally over my head. Um, and I didn't really grasp. It was a fraction that I was understanding, but it was enough to think, Oh my God, this, you know, I want more of this. And so the next one that we did was Fiddler and the original books on Fiddler, man, those horn players, uh, the horn parts were, mm-hmm. were also illegible because it was in like the key of, you know, it was a ton of sharps right. <laughs> because it was Fiddler yeah. and, um, and it was all handwritten. Yeah, it was a mess, but, uh, but so fun. And, 
I just remember being a, you know, not, not that I didn't already like bands because I did, but this was, this was a different level. This was something, something new. And, and I liked it. And the other benefit that I had was being close to Manhattan, um, on school trips, we would go in and we would see shows. I remember the first Broadway show I ever saw was Miss Saigon. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if Saigon has such a prominent horn book, but there are some moments that I remember specifically hearing the horn and being like, oh man. And, um, you know, I hunted down the, the horn player that played that book who has become a very dear friend and colleague and told him it's his fault. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, as I, as I said, you're the second French horn player that I uh, interviewed in the, and the first one was Kate Hopper, who's actually a local colleague. And I asked her mm-hmm. what her you know if she had any bucket list shows and right at the top of the list was miss saigon she's never gotten to play oh. it and wants to <laughs> all right so you've become a professional musician you you know you you went to boston college uh i guess uh, what did you do after boston college after boston college i went to graduate school um i auditioned and kind of looked into going to at least three or four different schools mm-hmm. um and i settled on umass amherst because well boston college you know, they're both in Massachusetts. I was able to meet up with um, the then professor, Laura Clock, who um, is an incredible teacher, mm-hmm. has had a great career as a horn player. Um, but what I really needed at that point was not a super intensive uh, orchestral fellowship. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't there. I wasn't ready for Juilliard right. or the kind of um, structure that, you know, heavy conservatory programs have. Um, I needed I needed time and a practice room and somebody who knew how to teach the horn who had time to, to devote to me. And I was incredibly fortunate to find Laura and UMass was very good to me. Um, I had a grad assistantship there. I taught, I taught undergrad classes and tons of lessons and just kind of camped out in Amherst for two years. And I got a lot done. And, um, and then after I finished at UMass, I had, um, I had gone to Tanglewood and met some of the, players in the Boston Symphony and one in particular, Gus Sebring, um, invited me to come and study with him. And so I did a diploma at uh, the New England Conservatory after UMass. So I, I went to I went to school for a really long time right. and I had the loans to prove it. And uh, but I had great experiences and great, great teachers. I'm, I'm, I'm right. lucky in that respect. Yeah, I've been, you know, besides <clears throat> besides hosting a podcast, I do listen to quite a few podcasts and just Recently, I, I was listening to a couple uh, different guests talk about the same thing that, you know, the the whole music conservatory model on the average needs a it needs touching up. You know, it's like there's a certain there's a certain style that fits a certain type of player, but it doesn't fit all of the, the types of players. I, you know, I, I'm you know, for someone who's going to go to Broadway and going to succeed at a high level there, you know, I think of the the programs I've been involved don't really cover that, and and you know, and you 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 have you have you know kind of found some non traditional ways to, to get the education you needed for that. Yeah. Uh, so on that note, um, when did you start doing theater professionally? So after I finished at NEC at New England Conservatory, I kind of parked it in Boston, uh, which a lot of, a lot of people that go to school in Boston just never leave because it's an amazing city. Boston is, it's that kind of town. So I was one of them and I hung out and 
um, picked up some teaching here and there. I started my brass quintet and began to freelance. And um, as anybody who freelance freelances knows, you, you know, especially at the beginning, you take what you get. Right. And, you know, you're everywhere. You're doing all kinds of different gigs. And um, I, I guess it took a couple of years, but um, some of the better work in town was the theater work in Boston. And um, I ended up doing like a last minute covering thing um, during the holidays. And um, that kind of put me on a trajectory to do a lot of the national tour shows that would sit in Boston. So because Boston's such a large metro area, um, some shows would hang out in Boston for, for a few weeks or a month or two, which is longer than other cities. Most, most of the Broadway tours in most cities in the United States will just do like one weekers. But anyway, Boston was an exception. And I started to do shows then. And um, that was a really important, great, helpful way to sort of warm me up for for doing it in New York, which um, just operates differently, you know, Um, and by differently, I mean, like, uh, faster. Everything is just more condensed in New York. Um, So, yeah, I was doing it in Boston and and, had great experiences uh, playing I played a lot of really great books um, in in Boston that I never got to play in New York. So that was cool. Right. You said you got to play some great books in Boston. What were some of those books you got to play? Um, well, the producers, I played the producers for a long time. Um, that was, oh my God, that was the most fun show. Um, just, you know, I, I found over the years that like, Happy shows mm-hmm. are, you know, happy show, happy band. You know, like if you have like a really heavy show, I mean, they're they're playing like the band of Les Mis is an awesome mm-hmm. band, and so everybody didn't get along. But it definitely like it affects the overall mood. <laughs> like if right. you're playing like happy clappy tunes, it's you know it's easier to it's easier to be right jovial at the end of the week. Um, but anyway, so producers was a great book. Um, and uh, what else did I play? I played Sweet Charity. Mm-hmm. in Boston. And, and I actually ended up playing that in New York uh, because Boston was the pre-Broadway location for that. But that was a beautiful book. Um, and that was my first experience with my one of my favorite orchestrators, Don Sebesky, um, who, who writes incredibly for the horn. God, he just knows the horn so well. Um, and the other thing that I, I benefited from by being in Boston is, as anybody who's done national tour books knows that when you have a band on tour that's smaller than the original Broadway band, they'll take the book, they'll take a, a two horn book mm-hmm. books and condense it into one really freaking hard horn book. That's yep. like, it's harder to play. So like the road book for beauty and the road book for Lion King, um, oh, they're, I mean, they're brutal. Mm. And I, so I played those, I played beauty and mm. I played Lion King in Boston and I, I mean, you really, you learn all three books, all two, you know, you learn and your chops grow and, you know, it, it ends up, it ended up being like overtraining basically. So that right. by the time, you know, when I, when I was able to sub at Lion King in New York, I was like, oh, right, you're not doing all of this. That person does that. I was like, that's nice. You know I mean? Just, it um, just never occurred to me until I was actually there. So anyway, so yeah, yeah Boston was amazing. So that's pretty enlightening because, you know, I know some, you know, Kate and some other players who played for community theater, 
I've listened to yeah. how hard those books are, but it's the same books that they do really when they're touring. They don't they don't they don't license out the Broadway version. They mm-hmm. license out a condensed right. version. So yes. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's it, it's totally condensed and um it changes everything. Like I that Lion King book was was unbelievable. And both Lion and Beauty, they win the prize right. for uh heavy road books. Nice. Anyway. Yeah. Uh all right. So when you when you moved back down to New York, um how long did it take you before you got your first Broadway show? Did you have to do any other, like any off-Broadway or anything? Or were you able to go right to it? Uh, well, we can split the difference. I certainly didn't get right to anything. But, right. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> like, um, but I was still living in Boston. And because of contacts that I had made in Boston, it's, it's a very long story and it's, it's probably for another podcast, but there was a contractor that I had developed a relationship with, you know, musical freelance relationship where he found himself contracting a show in New York Mm. and um, he was in a pinch and he called me in Boston. He said, look, I need, I need somebody to come down here it's not like there weren't enough horn players in new york as we all know but it was it was a quick fix it in his mind it was something that he wanted to uh, whatever it's a it's a convoluted story but i said yeah of course so chitty chitty bang bang was a broadway musical and um it's it was my first foray into subbing Mm. so i i had the opportunity to go to New York from Boston on very short notice. Um, I did have the opportunity to look at the book um, before I subbed or before I even, you know, I, I had the opportunity to really like sit down and get to know it, which is why it went well. I mean, that um, I imagine at some point we'll talk during the podcast about um, subbing right. and, you know, how, how it works and how best to go about it. And really, you know, subbing is terrifying because you're just you know, there's no rehearsal. You, you get your book, you make your recording of the show, which at that time, you know, technology has come a long way since I guess, whatever that was 2005. Um, so, you know, you do your best to record the show while you're sitting there listening to it for the first time. And then you just basically internalize that recording. Right. Um, and, and those are the things that I did. I just, it was the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang book was played by Jeff Nelson, Mm. uh, the great, and fearless Jeff Nelson, who, you know, so I was like, oh, my God, big shoes to fill. You know, Jeff is killing it every day. And, and I have to like come in and, and act like I'm not stressed out about it, right. um, which, of course, I was. So um, but that ended up being my first and really great experience as a sub. Um, and I attribute my good experience just to the fact that I was paranoid and overprepared. Right. Um, so your ability to go in and, and sub depends solely upon your level of preparation. It's as simple as that. Um, right. And, you know, some some books are harder than others, but I'm here to tell you Chitty was because mm-hmm. it was Jeff's book. Jeff's like, sure, I can do that. Oh, let's take this up an octave. He was, you know, he like he took that book and made it like he Jeffed it out. It was like it was right. awesome. But, um, yeah, big shoes to fill, as, as I said, and uh, I worked really hard. And so that is actually how I ended up getting my, the first show of my own because the conductor of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, once Chitty closed, she was going on to another another show and um, she hired me onto it. And nice. um, that was the Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, The Woman in White. Oh, okay. Um, Very nice. 
it was a short-lived show. Um, I think we only ran for like nine months, including previews. But um, yeah, it was great. Right. I, I, I would imagine that the, the really hard part about subbing, uh, other than, uh, you know, as, as Andrea uh, told me pre- re- recently, it's like, it, you know, in, in her mind, she not only had to play the part well, she had to sound like the other player was playing it. <laughs> and so she would try to adjust her tone so that it wasn't like all her, but it was it was the person she was subbing for. But but the other thing for me, I would think, is, um, you know, it's not a steady job. It's like you've you've got to fill up your other time with work while you're subbing and find other yeah. gigs, you know. And yeah. and then, of course, you know, if Broadway's your goal, you got to drop those gigs, <laughs> you know, yeah. and come in when you're yeah. called, you know. That's true. Those are all like <laughs> you just outlined the biggest challenges of, of freelancing in New York. I, you know, I remember when I, so I, I moved to New York because I had that show. But as I said, that the, my woman in white didn't run for that long. So when it closed, I got a bartending job and I worked day shifts. I opened right. the bar at 1130 in the morning. I worked until six so that I was free. Should anybody call me? And people did call. Right. And I, you know, I held this bartending job for like six to 12, 16 months a little more than a year. And, um, it was actually a great job, but it, the schedule, the schedule enabled me to show up for the show, but it, it didn't keep my chops together. So like there's, right. you have that whole other issue. Oh, it was, it was hard. It's really hard. Right. And Andrea had it right. You know, you go in, you know, people look at it differently. Like, so she felt like she had to sound like the, the regular, right. And she's not wrong. Um, but what's actually also a big thing is, I mean, you're allowed to sound like yourself. You're allowed to play like yourself, but you have to play like you know the show because what will happen is if you go in and, you know, everybody knows, that oh, it's their first show. Oh, we'll be nice. Oh, we have an open mind, blah, blah, blah. But when people hear uncertainty mm-hmm. and when people hear unfamiliarity, like because shows uh, shows are eight times a week and they happen as often as they do, um, people don't like change, right? right. So you know, people want to go in on Thursday night and they want Thursday. And and by they, I mean, everybody, especially the conductor, but also your colleagues, they want it to sound just like Tuesday night so that they can do their job the way that they know how to do their job. Um, cause it takes very little to sort of throw people off. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I've learned is that as, as familiar as your show might be, a show mm-hmm. is kind of a house of cards. Like if the, if, if a string of events if like the wrong string of events take place it it can derail a broadway show two years into its existence um and you know i don't know that a a sub having a bad day or not having prepared will derail a whole show but that person would stand out for the wrong reasons and it that's you know right just kind of what you want to avoid uh so what is the shortest amount of notice you've ever had for subbing a show. Oh yeah. Well, um, initially when I, when I first moved and and when I had that bartending job, I got an apartment as close to the theater district as I could. And so it was in the theater district on 54th and 9th, which enabled me to be what, what has been referred to as the snow call. Mm -hmm. Totally a snow call because there are, you know, a ton of people who commute in from various distances on public transportation or driving and in crappy weather. So I think 6.30, 7, um, I've gotten calls for non-show, non like non-shows where the show 
had already started like 207. It's like, are you here? Can you, can you get to here now? Um, you know, those, those calls happen. And so when you can help out in that way, you're helping people out. I mean, it's just, and that's, that's life, you know, it's like, you know, the subway broke down at 181st street or, you know, things, things happen. Wow. So if you're close, it's helpful, but yeah, it's been very last minute on a couple of occasions. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that is very last minute. Um, yeah. I'll see, I'm just going to read some of these other shows that you, that you've done. And I, and I just totally pulled this off your website. So I don't know, you know, if this is in any kind of order, but you, uh, you have opened Mary Poppins. Uh, I, I know a lot of local fans that'll be really excited about this one, a gentleman's guide to love and murder. South Pacific, Honeymoon in Vegas, Evita, Fiddler on the Roof, Anastasia. And, of course, we've talked about you were most recently doing Disney's Frozen. How did you get going from here? So, so you did Woman in White. What, what was next? Well, right after Woman in White was Mary Poppins. And I just want to be clear. I actually did not open Mary oh, Poppins. Oh, okay, okay. I, I joined Mary Poppins, I want to say, like three or four years in. Right. Um, but... Um, after Woman in White, Mary Poppins happened, and um, I was subbing a lot on Mary, like all the time on right. Mary Poppins. Um, so much right. so that when um, one of the players moved on to a different show, that 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 became my show. Um, but um, South Pacific was in the middle there somewhere, and South Pacific was a beautiful show. Um, that revival was was pretty magical, a 32 piece band, which, um, most people in the business in, in any city knows is a big band. Um, especially in New York, our bands are, you know, progressively getting smaller. So to do the, the original orchestration, that was really cool. But anyway, so that's what came after Women in White. So it was a combo platter of, of Mary Poppins and South Pacific. And, um, that, that lasted about five years total, those two shows. Nice. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I know it'd be really long if we like asked about like, you know, all the shows as you went. Um, but it's a really nice mix is you've got some revivals of old shows like Fiddler on the Roof and Evita. And then, um, you know, really acclaimed, um, you know, I, I can't, I don't remember if it was just nominated or won the Tony, but you know, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, you know. Gentleman's Guide is like my favorite show of all time. That was that was the most fun show to play, and it did win Best Musical. Right. Um, and I, I, by the way, I also didn't open Gentleman's Guide. I okay. took that show for for Pat Pridemore. Yeah, um, he opened that show, but that um, God, that show was hilarious, and the, the horn part was so beautiful. It was it was a chamber music orchestra. It was it was it was a really small band, but it was right. so well orchestrated. Jonathan Tunick orchestrated that, and. Um, uh, there was it was just light and very British, very Gilbert mm-hmm. and Sullivan. As anybody who you know, anybody who knows that show knows exactly what I'm talking about. It was just and God, the cast was so good. Anyway, yeah. Right. Have was, you ever uh, been on any? Have you ever recorded for like official cast recordings? Yeah, uh, most of the shows that um, so I'm on the cast albums for all of my shows except for Poppins. Okay, um, I'm not. In fact, I don't know if they did because Poppins opened in England first. I think London did the cast album. I don't even know that we had one. Right. I'm not on. Um, what else did I not do? The you know, I think I'm on all of them. Oh, so you um, did Gentleman's Guide as well? 
Yes, and that's oh, and that's sort of how I ended up getting that show because the, the original horn player in Gentleman's Guide um, had a tour. He was he was doing really awesome gigs out of town during the cast album, and um, so that ended up being something that I I came in to do. And then he left that show for a different show, and then I so that's how I got that show. It's I mean it's quite it's quite the square dance. Um, the things that go on. Um, nice. <laughs> personnel nice. changing. Right. Yeah, I I need to see Gentleman's Guide. Um, I actually almost got a chance to. I well, <laughs> I was asked twice by two different people of the same company to mm-hmm. um can music direct the local premiere in this area of it. But I I was already committed to another show and I couldn't do it. But it, but it's funny for I I had first of all. Uh, an, an executive director asked me, and then that executive director got changed, and then I got asked again. <laughs> you know, oh, so wow. it was just kind of yeah. funny. But um, everyone who did the show loves it. I've never been able to just by listening get a feel for the show. You know, so I feel like I need to see it and get some context. It's incredibly visual. You're you're absolutely right. It's t- it's totally visual, and um, Jefferson Mays, the the main actor um or the lead actor um god i mean he was just born to play this role and it was it was like everyone was rolling in the aisles it's like you're laughing so hard you're crying and it's all it's all visual but you know i mean it, maybe you've listened to the cast album or heard it on, on in some way like yeah you know it's incredibly witty the the lyrics are incredibly intelligent and and just so dry and as i said just so british mm-hmm. so if, if that's if that's your jam if british humor and you know light operetta gns if that's your so that's your thing, man. Gentleman's Guide is is the best. It's the best show. Nice. Well, we I'm gonna re I'm gonna re-listen to all of these recordings, you know, now that I've talked to you. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, great. Um you know, if we if we had a really long podcast episode, we could talk about your whole career, but you have, you know, quite a bit of non-theater experience, you know, that you've noted before. Uh, some some amazing artists you've you've gotten to play with, you know, uh, Wynton Marsalis. Um, the Who, Tony Bennett, Sting, Josh Groban, Barry Manilow, Joni Mitchell. I mean, the list goes on and on. And of course, you've done a lot. Um, you said chamber music, of course, is very important. And yeah. uh, you've played. You've played with. You were founding member of the Triton Brass. And yeah. uh, I mean, just what what are some highlights outside the theater that you've really enjoyed? Um, well, I mean, my quintet is my family. Um, we've we've been together for, for more than 20 years now, which is like, that's insane, uh, that we're still speaking. Um, but we are very much so. And, um, it's, it really has been a real journey with the quintet, um, uh, particularly early on. So early on we formed when I lived in Boston and we all had a lot of time to rehearse a lot. Right. And, um, so, you know, we were doing the, chamber music competition circuit and so we basically lived and breathed brass quintet and did a bunch of competitions over the course of a few years and um that's kind of how we developed our sound and how we developed our rehearsal style and just you know a group becomes a group when you spend enough time together um and then over the years uh we got the tanglewood gig so we're the faculty brass quintet 
for the Young Artists Win Ensemble. Um, and we've had that gig for many years. And um, we were with the Atlantic Brass Quintet Seminar for 17 years. Oh my God, yeah. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time together. And I would say that performing with them and recording with them um, has been the greatest highlight, you know, I mean, just it's up there with, with any Broadway opening, just because nice. the experience and playing with your, your buddies, people that, you know, so well, it's like, you get to know their breathing, you get to know, you know, you just, you're really a tight ensemble. And right. uh, so that, that's that. But um, my orchestra in Vermont is really special. I've, I've been with the Vermont symphony since 1999 and it's a different kind of family and love them. And I, I'm really very lucky. This has been, uh, you know, a hard year for everyone doing practically nothing or actually nothing, but it's really given me the opportunity to just look and be like, you know, I'm a lucky kid just nice. able to do all these different things. And can, can we please go back to doing them? Nice. <laughs> So this is the first time I've ever done this, and I thought this would be fun. I asked on Facebook if anyone had any questions. Cool. On the Facebook post, I mentioned the shows that you've played for, and so that's kind of in the background of all these questions. Okay. Gotcha. Tanner, Tanner says, these shows represent a wide variety of musical styles. Does the performer feel as if their role in the ensemble changed from show to show? Um, if, if so, how exactly... And how do you prepare for the variety within these shows? That's a really excellent question. Um, and yes, the role, I think one of the things that makes the horn, and this is where I run the, the horn commercial. Right. One of the things that makes the horn a great instrument is its versatility. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really, I guess the, the best word I can think of is insurance. Like there's a good chance you're going to find, even with these shrinking orchestras in New York, because they are getting smaller and smaller because the horn is so versatile. You're going to, you're going to find a horn in most bands. Um, and the reason for that is because the horn can swing. The horn can play straight. Right. The horn can blend with strings. The horn can blend with woodwinds. The horn can be second tenor sax the horn can be the horn can be its own counter melody i mean it's it's really kind of the whole musical package and so um as a player having a well-stocked toolkit is is a huge asset as a freelancer if you can you know i mean how often do we in ensemble here horns you're behind horns you're late horns you know um because you know, in our orchestral school, when we're, when we're learning, we, we are taught that sound is king and sound is king. Mm -hmm. But when you're only concerned about sound, you know, the, the attack of the note tends to be a little bit late. So you get into these, you know, timing issues and rhythmic issues. So as soon as you can, as soon as you can play on the beat, you can swing. As soon as you can play on the beat, you can play with a rhythm section in, in any kind of style of music. Anyway, I could talk about this for a really long time. Right. Every show <laughs> is different. And, um, and that's what makes it friggin' awesome is the variety. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's a right. great question. Right. Thanks. Um, I really yeah. like what Ken asks here. He says, how set is the orchestration once a show begins its run and does someone ever come along and change it? Oh, wow. Another really interesting question. Um, speaking only from my experience, I can't think of a time when that kind of a change has been made 
I know that those changes are made frequently before the first rehearsal. Um, But by the time we're in rehearsals, um, it's set. Um, And I should add that at least for Broadway runs, the band getting together is, it's literally the last thing that happens before the first preview. Uh, You know, so the cast and, and the actors, they're learning their lines and dancing and singing and they're there for months before we are. And we show up on a Wednesday and we're in the theater on Saturday morning. It's literally like a two, three day process and your show is, is in the bag. So it's super fast. And so the band is added in at the 11th hour. So there's been plenty of time for your orchestrator to get, get its act together. Nice. Great. Um, Butch has uh, two questions each about a specific show. A gentleman's guide to love and murder. Did Mm -hmm. those crazy costume changes work most of the time or, and did they have vamps or extra music to fill when there was a wardrobe malfunction? To the best of my knowledge, meaning from the pit where I have absolutely no visual of what's happening on stage whatsoever. Uh, what, what I can tell you is that I know that that show had unbelievable quick changes. Um, those, those Jefferson Mays in particular had, I mean, it was magical what the dressers could do off stage in a matter of, you know, zero seconds. Um, there was always distraction going on stage to to make up for that kind of you know those that activity so you'd have somebody else do something really quick while the quick change happens and yes that's written into the music but there are no specific vamps that i could think of to make up for um for there i mean there really were not i don't have to knock on wood anymore because the show closed but Mm. i can't think of any like disasters that happened um The, the big disasters that I remember was Chitty because the, it w- had a flying car and the car would always break. And Mary <laughs> Poppins had like this rotating stage thing that frequently broke down. Wow. So those are the two shows that I played that that had um, regular, but yeah, Gentleman's Guy just ran like clockwork. Nice. I don't know. Uh, and he asked for Mary Poppins, and I, and I don't know if I kind of fully understand the gist of this, but he says this for Mary Poppins, the scoring is for a brass band in the park, a nice woodwind yeah. chamber ensemble, and other stuff. Did they sit like that in choirs, or were they all mixed up? <laughs> no, my God, we were just like, you know, smashed in the pit, like in contortionists. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, nice. there was no thought whatsoever given to the style of orchestration. They literally just put us in how they could fit us. And um, I certainly do understand the question and why, because it is, a lot of it is written in the style of British bands and um, those instruments were used. You know, they, he, Sheppy used um, gorgeous, you know, cornets and, you know, he used instruments that would create the sound that they were going for, but we sat where we fit best. Right. uh, (laughs) Nice. Okay. Yeah. All right. The next one is from our, our, our mutual friend, Harlan. He asks, what's, oh, hi, Harlan. <laughs> what's different in a Broadway pit than you've seen elsewhere? If Harlan means what's different on a Broadway run, as opposed to like a region, like a different city experience, do you think he means that? Or po- Possibly. Uh, I guess, I guess just uh, like your just overall okay. experiences or something in New York. Yeah. You don't. So what's unique to Broadway? Um, what is unique to Broadway is, um, a sense of community and, you know, I think New York gets a bad rap 
<clears throat> people elsewhere think that, you know, everybody in New York is really mean <laughs> and everything is really hard or it's harder. Um, and that's not, that's not really the case. Um, everybody in New York that I've ever worked with is warm and happy to be there and happy to see you there. New people, you know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta have, you gotta be prepared mm-hmm. and, um, you're allowed to, to be expressive and show your own, um, show your own stuff in the context of a Broadway show. That's very, it's, it's, it's been cookie cut, you know, it is what it is, but there are, there are good ways to, to assert yourself and, and not helpful ways just to assert yourself. So that's a, um, that's kind of a, a balance, um, to achieve. And so I would say that's, I don't know, Harlan, I'm not really answering your question, but, um, yeah, I mean, there is, there is an excitement and there is a, a legit quality to, you know, opening a Broadway run as opposed to doing it somewhere else. But God, I've had a lot of fun in the somewhere else's too. Um, you, you have the ability to be a little bit more relaxed nice. and there is a stress level in New York that, uh, that isn't elsewhere, but you well, it depends on what blows your hair back. Right. <laughs> That's true. Um, Alex asks, do you have any pre-show rituals to ready yourself before playing? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. So, um, basically up until the shutdown, my commute to frozen was extent. It was long. I had a long train ride. <clears throat> so my pre-show ritual would be, I would try and really be hydrated because mm-hmm. you know, if you're, if you're dry, the horn playing sucks. Right. Um, and, uh, on my commute, I, I basically invested in a really expensive, those Sony noise canceling headphones. That was the best $300 I've ever spent. Mm. Um, because the noise cancellation, you know, when you're on a Metro North train going into grand central station, walking from grand central station on West 44th, all the way through times square. It's like the, the people factor, mm-hmm. the humanity that you are encountering before your downbeat is, you know, it can be very chaotic and, um, not, <laughs> not helpful for your right. mindset at the beginning of a show. Um, so those, that would be my ritual. I would, I would credit my expensive headphones with all the peace of mind, right. um, that I was able to get and uh, lots of water. Right. Just be, car- be careful crossing those streets though, with the noise canceling headphones. <laughs> That's true. That is true. And you know what? It's funny even saying this now, it feels so strange because Times Square has been empty for a full year. Wow. And just to get those crowds back would be, yeah. would be pretty great. Yeah, I remember when the uh, when the pandemics first happened. Every now and then, I would open up Google Maps, you know, just to like look at the the red that you have in New York and all that. And and I was I was seeing in midday green everywhere, and I was just like, wow, that that never happens. <laughs> Things are different these days. Yeah, it's it's been a super strange year, and. Um, okay. How we get back? I hope we get back soon, but I think it's going to be a slow roll. Um, now I'm going to, I'm going to preface Danielle's question with, uh, if, if you have such a story, she asks, what's the funniest story of a, of a bungled cue between actor and pit conductor? <laughs> well, Danielle sounds like she's got some experience of her own. Right. Um, I like that, but yeah, there was something that happened <laughs> at Mary Poppins and I, it might, 
I hope it it's funny in the translating, but it was really hilarious. So there was this one vamp in Mary Poppins and um, trying to remember. So it's Bert <clears throat> sings out of this vamp. He's got like a two eighth note pickup into the next section and, and rhythmically and like what he's doing on stage, his coordination, it was really complicated. So there were times where it didn't go, didn't go well. I think it was in let's go fly a kite. And, um, unfortunately for me, the, I, the second horn has the pickup into the next bar. And so, um, there was a screw up with the cue and so we were in the vamp and in the vamp and in the vamp, 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 vamp. And, um, and my conductor in the middle of the show, like st- he starts to panic because the, the hang up was costing time and it was starting to get, you know, like I said before, the show is a house of cards and the, right. the house of cards is like, it's shaking. <laughs> and he like, he looks down into the pit. He's like, Sheila, just start playing. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I, I was just so derailed by that. Like, I mean, he said, he screams my name and, and he wasn't mad, but it was, he just trying to keep the show together. And I was like, okay, nice. here we go. Oh, it was, it was, oh my God. You know, you had to be there. But nice. it, was, it was, and you know, we didn't have to stop the show, but. Right. Uh, <laughs> And it was, yeah, whatever. It was very funny. Well, that's great. Um, the last question is from Joel, and I feel like you've sort of implied the answer to this already. Do you find that the range required of horn parts tend to be higher in musicals, especially Disney, compared to other genres? Or at least, yeah. for, ro- or at least for road books, that would be the case. But what about like Broadway books? Yeah, no. Um, it, yes, for both. Yeah. Um, I would say that the high register is is definitely more frequently written for. Um, although, um, so yes, the short answer to your question is definitely, there There are a couple of moments of low horn, like Lion King's got some really low stuff. Um, <clears throat> and there are, I can think of moments in, in most shows where, where I'm below the staff, but just like, you know, once or twice in the whole show and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But when you have, um, a, there's a lot of middle register. Like Anastasia did not go very high. Gentleman's Guide did not go high. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, you, so you have certain show books that are screamers, mm-hmm. but most of them are most of them are bread and butter, like right in the middle, which which causes its own fatigue. You know, when you're like, and and by middle register, I mean like first line E, like well within the staff. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, uh, more high than low, but lots in the middle, especially with, you know, experiment, like different orchestrational styles. Right. Okay. And that was it for the questions, but, uh, great questions, everyone. Um, yes. If you, uh, so if you're listening, if you enjoyed that portion, let me know in a comment or send me a message and we'll try to include that in more episodes. So. Thank you for being game with that for the first round of this. Really um, I see. So we're just about out of time, but I just want to just ask, uh, is there any advice that you'd give to people who play French horn think that uh, maybe, you know, full-time orchestra is not for them. They'd like to play on Broadway someday. Yeah. Uh, I would say that that's a great plan. Um, I feel like I've gotten a tremendous out of, the variety that I've been lucky enough to, to play. Um, my advice would be to listen to a lot of music. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we have so much at our disposal 
now in terms of listening to anything, you know, as much as we hate Spotify because it's theft, um, it's total piracy, but you know, it is there for you to use. Um, there's basically no show that you can't find on there. So, you know, if you are, no matter where you are, if you're doing a high school production, if you're doing a community production, go on the internet and listen to your show and you can hear, you know, what the horn is is supposed to do on that show. And knowing, knowing beforehand will define your experience with that show and you'll, you'll be a better player and your music director will love you. And, you know, all only good things will come of that. Um, and just listening in general to, to the horn in its various contexts. I mean, we, we can do so much, we can do so much, um, and hearing hearing it done well uh, on recordings is is pretty invaluable. Great. Uh, and last uh, last question: Where can people follow you or find out more about you? Um, well, I have a website, um, SheilaBate.com, and um, you can easily contact me if, if anybody had any questions or wanted to email. Um, they should feel free to do so. I'd love to hear from you. Um, I am on Facebook all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd i say that Facebook is my favorite medium. I do a little bit of Instagram. I do a very little Twitter. Um, but, uh, you know, you can find me if you look for me and you're welcome to. I'd love to chat with you if you have any more questions. Okay. All right. Uh, well, again, uh, thank you for getting up early in the morning and taking time to talk to me. Thank you getting up because I asked you to. I appreciate it. You, this was great. It's really well done, um, super organized, and I really enjoyed your uh, community questions. I think that was a great, you know, if you have people that chime in, that's a great thing to include. So. Agreed. Thank you for answering. And that will do it for episode number 42 uh, I hope you enjoyed the second trip around Broadway. I know that um, there'll, there will definitely be a third trip to Broadway in April. Uh, I'm also going to be talking to people from Chicago, from in Washington, and even in uh, Wichita, Kansas. These are all some of the places coming up. Um, again, theater is all over America, all over the world. I want to get all of these stories. Uh, and yes, including Broadway. And again, That'll be happening at some point in April as well. Check back with us next Friday. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss anything on whatever, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll have episode number 43. That'll be on Friday, April 2nd. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or on Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. And as always, a big special thank you to Mark Perolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about this podcast, leave feedback, or leave a donation at davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening. 